You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everyone. Guess what? We're moved. And exhausted. Man, moving is hard work. But worth it because we really like our new place. We do. It's great. Um, We're still here in Colorado. We moved to Erie, Colorado, so we're still near Denver. It's kind of funny we moved to Erie since I have a lot of family back home in Erie, Pennsylvania, home of Civil War hero Strong Vincent. Uh, And I looked it up, and the town of Erie, Colorado wasn't established until 1874, so that means no Civil War heroes hailed from here. Anyway... Anyway, since we're moved and in our new place, that means this will be the last of these members episodes that we'll share with y'all. So next week, we'll be back with a brand new episode. Major General Thomas J. Jackson rode into Harper's Ferry to inspect the town, the supplies and equipment, and the Federal soldiers that the troops under his command had captured a few hours earlier. It was late morning on Monday, September 15, 1862, as Stonewall entered Harper's Ferry, and as he passed the lines of prisoners, many of them couldn't help but gawk at the unremarkable-looking but already legendary Confederate General. As Jackson rode past, one of the Yankees told those around him, Boys, he isn't much for looks, but if we'd had him, we wouldn't have been caught in this trap. There was general agreement to that observation among the captured Yankees. In snapping shut the trap at Harper's Ferry and forcing the surrender of its garrison, Stonewall had bagged about 12,000 prisoners, abundant supplies and clothing and equipment, 13,000 small arms, and over 70 pieces of artillery. The only rebels unhappy with the outcome were the cavalrymen, who had looked forward to resupplying themselves with fresh mounts and new equipment. One of the Confederate horsemen said that the fact the Yankee cavalry had somehow managed to slip out of the trap and escape Harper's Ferry, quote, was enough to vex a saint. When Jackson found out the 1,500 Federal troopers had got away, he supposedly muttered, I would rather have had those horses and that cavalry than everything else there is in the place. That cavalry was indeed gone, but how and aware? About 16 hours before Stonewall Jackson rode into Harper's Ferry, 
1,500 Union cavalrymen had crossed a nearby pontoon bridge over the Potomac River, eluded detection by Confederate pickets, and started, as one historian has written, quote, one of the more spectacular cavalry deeds of the war. Stonewall's victory was marred only by the escape of the group dubbed the Harper's Ferry Skedaddlers. The officer who led the elusive Union troopers out of the Confederate trap was a Southerner himself, Colonel Benjamin F. Davis, commander of the 8th New York Cavalry Regiment. A Mississippi-born West Pointer, Grimes Davis, as his pre-war Old Army friends called him, learned the cavalry trade on the plains of Texas and in the mountains and valleys of New Mexico and California. As a second lieutenant of the 1st Dragoons, he fought against Apache Indians in the Gila Expedition of 1857, being wounded in a skirmish along the Gila River in June of that year. And Davis was a captain in the 1st Cavalry in California when the Civil War began. Choosing allegiance to the Union instead of to his native state, Grimes Davis made his way east and held various postings until in June 1862 when he was given command of the 8th New York Cavalry. Although his new command didn't actually have any horses yet, Davis nevertheless instituted a rigorous program of training and drill. The New Yorkers, all volunteers of course, at first resented their new colonel's strict, regular army mindset, but when horses were finally secured in mid-July, morale improved considerably. On August 29th, Davis received orders to take his regiment to Harper's Ferry, and three days later, the 8th New York rode into the town, joining the garrison there. We won't get into the details of the Confederate investment of Harper's Ferry, since we just covered that in the last two members' episodes, but we'll just say that as the rebels approached the town, Davis's troopers and four other Federal cavalry units engaged in patrolling and reconnaissance. But once the Confederate trap snapped shut, the Union cavalrymen could no longer tactically aid in the defense of Harper's Ferry. In other words, once it became a siege, there just wasn't much for the Federal cavalry to do, since then the Federal infantry and artillery units would have to actually defend the town. Lieutenant William Luff of the 12th Illinois Cavalry later recalled the trooper's state of mind, saying, quote, The situation was extremely depressing, surrounded on all sides by the enemy, with no hope of relief or opportunity to make an adequate defense, and with the prospect of early capture or surrender, the mind to the officers and men naturally turned toward escape, end quote. With escape so tempting an idea, Grimes Davis approached Lieutenant Colonel Hasbrook Davis of the 12th Illinois Cavalry on the morning of September 14th to seek another officer's opinion. The junior officer agreed that escape was preferable to surrender. Both men then consulted with three other officers, Colonel Arno Voss, commander of the 12th Illinois and ranking cavalry officer at Harper's Ferry, Major Augustus Corliss, commanding the 7th Squadron, Rhode Island Cavalry, and Lieutenant Hanson Green of the 1st Maryland Cavalry. All agreed to go with Davis to support him as he presented the idea of escape to Colonel Dixon Miles, the commander of all the Federal Defenders at Harper's Ferry. That afternoon, the cavalry officers met with Miles. 
Davis presented his idea and outlined his rationale. 1. The horses had no forage. 2. The cavalry was no longer of any military use. And 3. If Harper's Ferry surrendered, which in all likelihood it would be, then the Federal cavalry's horses and equipment would be an important catch for the Confederates. But Miles said no. Colonel Voss later said that, quote, At first he would not listen to such a proposition at all, denouncing it as wild and impracticable, imperiling the lives of the whole command. Miles was unwilling to sanction Davis's plan for fear that the cavalry's escape attempt would lead to a stampede of all the federal defenders seeking to break out of the rebel trap. Davis stood his ground, though, and argued with Miles. According to one account, the two exchanged, quote, some sharp words. However, Miles at last relented and agreed to Davis's proposal. He asked by which route the escape would be attempted. After some discussion, Davis said the horsemen would cross the pontoon bridge spanning the Potomac, and then once across the river, follow the road that led north to Sharpsburg. This route, however, involved serious risk, since the Union cavalry would have to ride directly under the noses of Lafayette McClaw's Confederates up on Maryland Heights. The chances were slight that the Confederates would have left this avenue of escape unguarded, and the Federal horsemen would probably have to fight their way out. But nevertheless, Miles agreed to the plan and said that orders would be forthcoming. Before the conference broke up, Miles admonished the cavalry officers not to discuss their escape attempt with the rest of the garrison, since he was afraid such talk would cause an uproar among the trapped Union infantry. Miles' written orders arrived later that afternoon. They designated Voss, the senior cavalry officer, as commander of the operation. But in reality, Grimes Davis, who had suggested and lobbied for the escape attempt, would be in charge. The orders specified that the cavalry units would depart at 8 o'clock that evening. They would move out, quote, without noise or loud command, end quote. The 1st Maryland Potomac Home Brigade would lead, followed by the 12th Illinois, the 8th New York, and the 7th Rhode Island Cavalry, and then the 1st Maryland would act as rear guard. Miles' orders concluded by stating, quote, No other instructions can be given to the commander than to force his way through the enemy's lines and join our own army. Word of the impending escape attempt spread rapidly through the cavalry units. The Federal horsemen were delighted and excited at the news. Few preparations were required, and the men were ready shortly after dark. All baggage was to be left behind, and so the 12th Illinois left their brass band behind, along with their tents. Lieutenant Luff would later say that, quote, We missed the tents afterward, but managed to get along without the band. The horsemen converged near the arsenal buildings and the street paralleling the Shenandoah River. In training and experience, the units varied greatly, from Davis's well-drilled New Yorkers to the Green Rhode Islanders, who had only ten days left in their three-month enlistment. The 12th Illinois, like the 8th New York, was made up of veteran three-year men, 
while the two Maryland units were experienced in scouting and picketing, and many of those men were familiar with the region into which the column was about to ride. The guides for the operation had been selected from the Maryland units, and there was also a civilian scout who possessed a thorough knowledge of the countryside. Grimes Davis would ride with the vanguard. At the designated hour, everything seemed ready. Company officers reminded their men to keep closed up. Everyone knew that if you fell behind or got lost, you were on your own. An officer told his men that by the next morning they would either be in Pennsylvania or in hell or on their way to Richmond as prisoners. The guides and the two Davises led the column onto the bridge and into the intense darkness beyond. Once across the bridge, the column turned left and increased the pace from a walk to a near gallop. From almost the beginning, the units became spread out and unable to keep closed up, because of the inky darkness and the increased speed. The operation had hardly started before a disaster nearly occurred when a company of the 12th Illinois turned right after crossing the bridge. The unit had lost contact with the company before it, before it while crossing the bridge, and after making the wrong turn on the far side, they rode on a short distance until they ran into a strong Confederate picket line. The Federal captain, realizing his mistake, quickly turned his men around and rode back to the bridge and rejoined the column. After crossing the bridge and turning left, the Union horsemen found that the road to Sharpsburg passed between the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal and the high ground near the Potomac for a mile before turning right and then up a steep ascent over a spur of Maryland Heights. Near that point, the head of the column encountered McClaw's pickets. But the rebel pickets, when faced with Federal cavalry rushing at them out of the darkness, decided discretion was the better part of valor, and they quickly scattered after firing a few shots. And with that, the road to Sharpsburg lay open before the Yankee troopers. You see, focused as he was on capturing Maryland Heights, and worried about Federals appearing to his rear in Pleasant Valley, Lafayette McClaws had failed to adequately guard the Sharpsburg Road, and so the escaping Federal cavalry were able to simply brush aside the few rebel pickets and ride on. Exactly. The brief encounter with those few rebel pickets hardly slowed down the Federal horsemen. They continued up the steep, rocky road, with the head of the column several miles beyond the bridge, even as the rear still waited to cross. In the darkness, the column became like a huge accordion, stretching and then abruptly halting, as troopers spurred their mounts on, only to quickly stop when they ran into the rider ahead. One frustrated Federal later recalled how, quote, Sometimes we would be twenty yards from our file leader, and then we would come up full drive. Then we would hear some tall swearing. It continued that way for miles, with the Yankee horsemen trying to judge the pace in the darkness by the clatter of hoofs, the rattling of equipment, or by the sparks from the horse's shoes striking stones in the road. Few of the men had ever done anything so difficult. The stress was almost unbearable. Lieutenant Luff admitted that, quote, it was a killing pace and very hard work to keep up.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. The first federal horseman reached the outskirts of Sharpsburg shortly before midnight on Sunday night, and there Grimes Davis called a halt to allow the column to close up and rest the horses. After a half an hour, Davis had the men remount, and the federal cavalry entered the southern end of Sharpsburg. When Davis reached the town square, he turned eastward onto the Boonesboro Turnpike to head toward Frederick. Before they left Harper's Ferry, Miles had told the cavalry officers that, according to his latest information, McClellan's army was near Frederick, moving westward. But as the Yankees approached the old Lutheran church, situated on a slight rise on Sharpsburg's eastern outskirts, the troopers suddenly heard from out of the darkness the challenge, Halt! Who goes there? When a cavalryman responded, Friends of the Union, a smattering of musket fire immediately answered that unsatisfactory reply. The leading federal troopers, as they had at Maryland Heights, charged forward to overrun the unseen enemy. But, as Voss later recalled, quote, Suddenly a sheet of flame illumined the darkness for an instant, followed by the report of at least a hundred rifles sending their leaden messengers about our ears. The Federals recoiled from this obvious show of force and withdrew back down the main street, where the milling horsemen became bunched up for two blocks. Incredibly, no one was hit in the unexpected encounter with the enemy. The Southerners were, in fact, horsemen who belonged to Fitzhugh Lee's cavalry brigade, who were acting as the vanguard of the Confederate force that was about to converge on Sharpsburg prior to the Battle of Antietam. Meanwhile, townsfolk were telling the Federals they wouldn't find anyone but Robert E. Lee's army up the Boonesboro Turnpike. Grimes Davis, Voss, and the guides quickly huddled and discussed this sobering news, for a change of plan was certainly needed. In a few minutes, a decision was reached. Hagerstown to the north and beyond it, the Pennsylvania border, would be the column's new objective. The Yankee troopers therefore headed out of Sharpsburg on the Hagerstown Turnpike, which was an excellent road leading northward for ten miles to its namesake town. They rode at a trot through the darkness, putting some distance between themselves and the Confederates back yonder. Approaching Jones's crossroads at the intersection of the Hagerstown Road and the Williamsport Boonesboro Pike, Davis called another halt near a house belonging to a Dr. Maddox, who the civilian scout said was a well-known Union man. 
Davis wanted to know if the loyal doctor could provide any specific information as to the dispositions of the nearby Confederates. The good doctor had grim news. James Longstreet's entire command was up at Hagerstown. Maddox's report was actually outdated, since Longstreet's rebels had already marched from Hagerstown to go to the aid of D.H. Hill at South Mountain. Not knowing that the doctor's news was outdated, the Federal horsemen had to proceed as if Hagerstown was occupied by a strong enemy force. Based on that assumption, Davis decided that the column would still head north, but would stay off the turnpike and instead would ride cross-country. It was now 2 a.m. on Monday morning, September 15th, two days before the Battle of Antietam. The Federal troopers had been riding for six tiring hours, but their ordeal was still far from over, for more challenges lay ahead. Over rolling meadows and fields, through cornfields, across streams, the column of Federal horsemen bumped and snaked along. Bone-numbing fatigue began to take its toll. Many of the troopers fell asleep in the saddle. In other cases, the exhausted horses simply stopped, unable to continue. Some men simply became separated from their comrades in the darkness and lost their way. The strain on already frayed nerves and tired minds was intense. Longstreet's wagon train and one of his infantry brigades, rather than heading for South Mountain, was marching down the turnpike from Hagerstown to Sharpsburg, and often the Union cavalrymen would pass so close to the rebel bivouacs that the enemy could be seen standing or sleeping around the campfires. Corporal I.W. Haysinger of the 7th Squadron, Rhode Island Cavalry, was passing through a cornfield when he was suddenly stopped by a Confederate soldier who drawled out, Say, what regiment are you? The quick-thinking Haysinger replied, 14th Alabama Cavalry. The rebel shot back, You're a damned liar. But he let the matter drop there, apparently not concerned enough to pursue the issue further as Haysinger rode on. As the night wore on, the guides unerringly brought the saddle-worn column back to a road. They emerged from the fields at a point on the Williamsport-Boonsboro Road near the College of St. James. The Federals rode westward for a mile toward Williamsport, then turned off onto a narrow country road which ran north by northwest for nearly two miles before it intersected with the Hagerstown-Williamsport Turnpike. When the horsemen reached the pike, Davis called a halt to rest the mounts and allow the column to close up. The landscape was still dark, although the first faint gleam of dawn was just barely beginning to lighten the eastern sky. Then, to the north, the Federals heard the rumbling of many wagons coming down the road from the direction of Hagerstown. Davis, assuming the oncoming convoy was Confederate, decided to lay a trap for it. Along the immediate stretch of turnpike, trees lined both sides of the road, which provided ideal concealment for the mounted Yankees. On one side of the turnpike, Davis placed his own New Yorkers, and on the other side he positioned the 12th Illinois, with the Maryland and Rhode Island units in reserve. Grimes Davis, with the squadron of the 8th New York, waited in the middle of the road, ready to intercept the approaching wagons. 
The wagons, pulled by six mule teams, were Longstreet's ordnance and commissary train, which had been ordered to move from Hagerstown to Williamsport on the Potomac, so they would be ready to cross the river to safety if necessary. The 11th Georgia Infantry Regiment, under Major F. H. Little, had been tasked with guarding the wagons. The 1st Virginia Cavalry rode to the rear of the wagon train, since that was the only direction from which a Yankee attack was expected. Grimes Davis halted the first wagon, even as his men closed in around the guards and disarmed them. The surprise was complete, and the Federals quickly seized the next wagons in line and quietly captured the unsuspecting guards. While Davis was giving orders for the wagons to be taken over to the Green Castle Pike and then up to that Pennsylvania town, a Confederate officer rode up to the first wagon and accosted the teamster driving it, wanting to know why he had halted. The teamster, pointing to one of the nearby horsemen, blurted out, The woods are full of Yanks! Not believing the fellow, the rebel officer angrily asked one of the unidentified horsemen by what authority he had halted the wagon train. Major William Frisbee of the 8th New York calmly replied, By the authority of an officer of the United States Army. At that, the Confederate was disarmed and joined the other prisoners. Without any further incidents, the captured wagons proceeded south another quarter of a mile, turned right onto a country road, and rolled toward the Green Castle Turnpike. Davis, meanwhile, stationed himself at this intersection and awaited the next victim. As each wagon approached, the native southerner used his best Mississippi drawl to direct the teamster onto the country road, where waiting federal horsemen disarmed any guards. Lieutenant Luff remembered how, quote, the capture was effected so quietly that after the foremost wagons had been taken and turned toward Greencastle, the escorts of the remainder were in complete ignorance of what had taken place until they reached the point where the change of direction was made, and they too passed into the service of the United States. A change of governments was probably never more quietly or speedily effected. In all, 45 wagons were captured before Major Little of the 11th Georgia discovered that something was seriously amiss, and he stopped the rest of the convoy and avoided further loss. He then ordered the 1st Virginia Cavalry to pursue the Yankees, but by the time the Confederate horsemen got themselves sorted out and set off in pursuit, the Federal column was on the Greencastle Pike and headed north fast. The Virginia horsemen mounted a feeble attack, but they were easily driven off by the 12th Illinois, which was now acting as rear guard. The final miles to the Pennsylvania border and then up into the Keystone State passed without incident or trouble except when several of the upset southern teamsters succeeded in wrecking their wagons by driving them off the road. The federal horsemen burnt those disabled wagons, and then two troopers, with cocked pistols, were assigned to ride alongside each wagon with orders to shoot any teamster who tried any more such shenanigans. The column then continued on its way until it was within sight of its destination, Greencastle, Pennsylvania. There, as the dust-covered Federal cavalrymen approached the town's outskirts, they were mistaken for Confederate raiders by some local militiamen who speedily scattered without further ado. 
When the horsemen were correctly identified, though, the embarrassed militia returned, and the townspeople enthusiastically welcomed the column to Greencastle with food and drink. But many of the Yankee troopers, more exhausted than hungry, simply sank down and fell asleep the moment they dismounted. It was nearly nine o'clock on Monday morning when the column reached Greencastle, thirteen hours after the Federal horsemen had ridden out of Harper's Ferry. One contemporary wrote that, quote, This escape of Davis from Harper's Ferry and Nathan Bedford Forrest's escape from Fort Donelson under very similar circumstances show what a bold subordinate may achieve after his superior has lost heart. End quote. And indeed, for daring, courage, resourcefulness, drama, and plain good luck, this minor exploit has few equals during the Civil War, and the credit belonged primarily to one man, Grimes Davis. It was his idea to extricate the 1,500 Federal horsemen from the Confederate trap at Harper's Ferry, and then he led them more than 50 miles through scattered enemy forces with the invaluable help of some remarkable guides. And then, to top it all off, he captured a significant portion of Longstreet's ordnance train without hardly firing a shot, all at the cost of only 178 men missing. Grimes Davis received the brevet rank of major in the regular army for his night's work in September 1862, but a volunteer general star was never to be his. The next spring, in June 1863, while leading a charge at the Battle of Brandy Station, he was hit in the head by a Confederate bullet and was dead before he hit the ground. Davis died as a cavalry officer of much promise, whose most brilliant moment was when he and the Harper's Ferry skedaddlers rode across the pontoon bridge and headed for Pennsylvania, Hell, or Richmond. <laughs> 